Hello, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And I'm Andrew. And tonight, we're going to talk about scaling all the things. Um, not fish, but, you know, like Postgres and Rails. and Descaling. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about how to make your stuff bigger without making your life harder. Um, but we are excited to have Andrew Atkinson here tonight. Um, and we are going to be talking about a lot of fun stuff. Uh, chat, I hope you brought your questions. Because um, this is the man to pick the brain of if you want to know how to scale stuff. Um, but before we get to that, week in review. Creston, how was your week? Pretty busy. I always <laughs> say that, though. Uh, <laughs> speaking of scaling, one thing I was helping uh, a customer with is actually scaling or distributing DNS queries like using weighted models to pick which DNS server to go to. It's interesting, there's not a lot of services that provide the ability for DNS to actually direct traffic to one or more web servers and then do health checks against them. Like I know AWS Route 53 does, and I know that uh, Cloudflare, my understanding, they do it. But a fair number of other DNS services just don't provide the functionality. And for me, like since I've started using that, I mean, that's been great to me for helping scale your site, keeping it up. <laughs> but that's that's some of the stuff I focused on. What about you? Um, I had a lot of it was it was another one of those primarily admin weeks, and I just got to do a little bit of of key tickling. By admin, for some... you don't mean systems administration. You mean no, I mean people administration. People people and paper pushing. Yeah. All the all the fun things that we we get into dev for, you know. Um but yeah, it's it, I I'm spending a lot of time with our enterprise clients and kind of standing in the gap between the tech speakers and the English speakers and doing a lot of translation work between those two uh groups of people. So I I actually enjoy that. Um you know, taking tech speak and and helping non-tech people understand it and then taking what they want to do and helping the the engineering side of people understand well this is this is what it means in programmerese guys so you know it's it's kind of a fun challenge for me but yeah i didn't get to do a lot of actual programming this week a couple little minor bug tweaks but um but you know if that's that's where the company needs me that's where they need me so that's what you do. Uh, so how about you, Andrew? Anything fun and exciting? Uh, yeah, I was thinking of two things, I guess. One technical and one less technical, but I think also still really important. And uh, the technical one, uh, ironically, is actually more about Elasticsearch than uh, Postgres, which we're going to talk about today. But uh, we also use Elasticsearch, where I work pretty heavily, uh, for the application. Uh, and something I... The team I'm on now is more of an infrastructure team and something I've never actually been able to do in my career, but have always been interested in doing is these uh, disaster uh, preparation and, and readiness exercises. And uh, we're actually doing that now. So we did a kind of a simulation of a region level failure last week in a really low, in a non-emergency situation. So we could just take our time 
write up some documentation or, you know, make sure our documentation was good. Uh, and I worked with another engineer on the team to go through that. And it was, um, uh, it was really uh, a good exercise to go through it. And it felt good to reveal places where we had missed uh, covering things and then build some mutual understanding about how that might work in an emergency ahead of time. So I thought that was useful. And we're doing a similar exercise for all of our databases, which includes Postgres and um, Redis. Uh, and um, yeah, I think it's a, uh, we, we did have some in place already, but we're kind of trying to take it up a level and then help grow the knowledge on the team. And the non-technical thing actually just today was uh, our, we have a, a remote first company and um, we have uh, employees, I think in 11 countries, we have employees though, all around the United States. And um, it's really hard to work remotely. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. Uh, we, we feel like it's pretty difficult and it's difficult to do it really well. And there's a lot of companies that have a lot of great information about it. I'd say our current company is, we're trying to kind of go to the next level and make it more deliberate and create more intention and practices and tools and processes and that are more mindful of improved remote work. Uh, and so today we had a meeting where we are going to be experimenting with modifying our, our kind of new employee onboarding. And I was able to contribute some ideas for uh, that were more remote work oriented. And we're going to be able to actually try them out with real people and real managers and, and real employees starting. And I think that's fun too. Oh, that's, that's neat. Cause you're right. That yeah. is, that's a tough nut to crack. It's, it's hard to do that. Um, but a lot of companies just have to because of the way development works anymore. Um, and Honestly, that just got my brain thinking that might actually be a good show. See if we can find some people who are experts in that and talk, because I'd be interested to know more about that. That's that's a heck of a thing. Out of curiosity, what are some of the problems or the issues that you're encountering or people of the company are encountering that you're wanting to improve how it's working now? Yeah, well, I'd say that we're actually trying to explore what the specifics are, because the uh, leadership of the company felt that we were not thriving as a company. I don't think I'm sharing anything that's private here really. Um, but within different departments, like within engineering, I think there are some people that feel we're actually doing really well. We do a lot of async work already. We do a lot of writing. Um, so I'm not sure if certain departments identify with that or not. And so actually what we've done so far just to get started was a survey to all employees that was a remote work oriented survey. And we haven't, uh, next week, I think we're gonna be going through the results uh, and we're going to try to get um, more information about what might be working or not working from different departments. For example, you know, sales or customer support, those kinds of departments. Um, but I mean, I'd say like at a high level, I think commonly, you know, with, with COVID and the pandemic and everything, and a lot of, we've had a, a lot of growth at the company. I think it's, there's some pretty, there's some probably likely, uh, things to work on, which is just relationship building and trust building with people and, you know, knowing which, what teams are working on and who to reach out to. And I personally think I've worked remotely for a long time and personally think that it works really well when you know, you know, when you have really good team alignment and really good inputs, and then you can just execute, you know, you can just work and you get to work kind of on your own schedule and there's a lot of great benefits. But when you're confused about what the priorities are or who to talk to or that sort of thing, that's where I feel like remote work starts to you know, become more difficult. 
So that kind of like, um, you know, Hashi, one, one company that we've been talking about is HashiCorp. Uh, they have a really great writing guide online where they talk about like um, a couple of standards, for example, exploring problems uh, as distinct from exploring solutions. I think they, they call it a problems problem requirements document. And um, they, they have, um, they have actually a number of different structures that we are kind of looking at as inspiration or things we want to adopt maybe to help improve relationship building, trust building, mutual understanding of problems and that kind of thing. Cool. Uh, so Mark, you made it live to the show. That is very cool. Welcome, welcome. Uh, so he has a question for you, Andrew. Um, I think going back to your your initial thing you were talking about, how does the team decide when and how much to automate such outage scenario testing? Uh, kind of an end-to-end -end test for platforms sounds like quite a task. Yes, it does. Yeah, it is. It is a big task. Uh, we we're we are a pretty small team on the the dedicated infrastructure and <clears throat> engineering team right now. Um, like less than 10 people. So, uh, we can't really automate everything. We actually do make heavy use of Terraform to, uh, automate a lot of things though. But as far as our, and I actually think this is often the right way to do it is, is to do things manually first when it's easier to change things and you're kind of in a discovery phase. Yeah. So, um, things like setting up replication, setting up snapshotting, trying a restore from a snapshot trying a, uh, a failover from a, a leader to a follower or a primary to a replica, doing those manually as an exercise first and working out the kinks is something that we're doing. And so what we're doing is we're kind of going, we have a broader plan, you know, where we do want this all to be automated, but for this quarter, we're just basically focusing on doing these manually, doing it with like two engineers. So we know where to go, what the steps are, and, and then next quarter, we hope to do more automation. Cool. All right. So we've, we've all had some busy weeks, <laughs> but, um, all right. So Andrew, I want to talk about scaling. I'm really interested, but, but first I want to hear a little about Andrew. What's, what's kind of your path to this love for scaling things? Um, well, yeah, I guess. The, um, my, not my current employer, but my previous employer, I joined, uh, in at a time period where, um, I was able to, uh, where the product was used heavily. Well, let me uh, take a step back. So I think in my career, actually, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to work on larger scale applications. I've worked at a lot of startups where there just isn't a ton of activity quite yet. And, um, or actually one company I worked at with a lot of scale, they use MySQL. So I wasn't really a database oriented developer or a database curious developer at that point. I was right. just using it for basic stuff, using the ORM. Um, I wasn't able to access the primary and do things, which I can now, for example. But uh, uh, the, uh, the path, I guess, has been mostly application development in my career. Um, I think it's been about, let's see, 2006 is kind of when I got my start. So however many years that is, but yeah, mostly web app development and then increasingly becoming uh, a more senior engineer 
wanting to work on higher leverage tasks in part, you know, like make broader impacts in my work. Um, and uh, I've always been, I guess, a little bit, I, I think like a number of things aligned for me, you know, it was uh, the, um, the biggest, the biggest reason though I don't want to lose sight of is having the actual opportunity to do things. So let me, let me go to a specific example now. Uh, so this company I joined, one of our first issues was we didn't have a dedicated database administrator and we had some operational problems that are common from um, high growth uh, database activity in Postgres, such as big bloat that wasn't really being addressed effectively with the built-in you know, automatic vacuum mechanism. So I had heard of auto vacuum and I you know, pulled up the documentation page and saw there was a couple of parameters, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And <laughs> Um, people on the team, you know, uh, we had great engineers on the team, but no one was really focused on the kind of macro level to use a term I've learned recently. Um, shout out to the postgres.fm podcast. Uh, they've been talking <laughs> about kind of micro level and macro level optimization. But so the, uh, the kind of macro level look like what is your overall, you know, uh, resource consumption, like with aggregated queries, um, or what is your operational problems? Like, are you hitting a lot of uh, resource load from indexes that have very high bloat that are being very ineffective and need to be rebuilt? Um, and it's not queries themselves, but it's more operational. So those are some of the issues that we were having. And I think I kind of started mainly with auto vacuum. And then um, I think I can, name this person because uh, I believe I have publicly before, but so I was, um, I had the opportunity to attend an office hours regularly with a Postgres committer, um, David Rowley, uh, really nice guy, uh, really, really helpful. Um, and it was an opportunity for employees at the company to attend. And I kept going and at least several times, uh, no one else was attending. So I just got to talk about my issues and David just told <laughs> me and it was great. And it is uh, astounding. Now, was this all a focused discussion on Postgres? It was, yeah. It and was, databases. It's yeah. astounding to be the number of developers that are like, oh, database, keep, keep away, keep away. I, know. I don't want to go near you. Yeah. I'm, and that, I'm that's constantly been, astounded by that. But anyway. Yeah, that's been part of it. I mean, I think, you know, and um, I've, I've built a lot of my career on Ruby on Rails and I'm really appreciative of everyone that's built it. The philosophy though, I think in the early days, or at least what I took away from it was you, if you use the object relational mapper, if you use active record, you know, you can do things like switch databases or you can do things like not worry about SQL. And, um, and the number yeah. of companies that have actually switched databases are probably on the one. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've, I've actually never, uh, one company I joined said they had just just switched prior to me joining, but I, I believe I'm still like, you know, I, I don't know how to say it in a sports way, like zero for zero. I don't I don't think I've ever the database has ever yeah, been switched yeah, where, yeah. where I've been working. Yeah. Um, becomes really costly, and in terms of hours and and opportunity cost and things. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's costly, but so most of my career had been using the ORM. And, and that's great. But when you run into, uh, you know, I think if you come at things from the other side, from an infrastructure perspective, systems administrators, database administrators, 
you know, they're going to be thinking about disk IO and they're going to be thinking about memory usage. And, and most of that, I don't, I'm not claiming to be very knowledgeable about, I'm not. And, um, but that's kind of the direction that I'm going now in. I'm kind of going from the application more towards the system level, but I also, uh, yeah, I just, I just, uh, kind of discovered that, uh, like you said, Creston, there aren't to some extent, I don't feel like there are there it's, it's, uh, it's not a very crowded space. Like I feel like there's a lot of interest and I'm sometimes surprised that people aren't more interested in the relational database management system, whether it's Postgres or MySQL or whatever, with some of the operational quirks and nuances. And so that's part of it. I would say one other quick thing, and then I'll, I'll take a breath is, uh, <laughs> I've, I've realized about myself over time that I'm, I'm comfortable just telling people I'm the kind of nerd that likes to read the manual. Like I just got an, I got an e-bike recently and I, um, was genuinely really excited. I was excited for the bike, but I was also excited to read the manual. And I learned like two things from reading the manual. I learned how to read the power level from the battery that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. And then I learned about like a walk mode that it has, I didn't even know about. So I um, have realized that actually plays out in my career too. And I like to read the Postgres documentation <laughs> and it's really well done, you know, it, it's, um, and so I think there's always opportunities to say, oh, this is, this is weird. And why does it work this way? And then go into the Postgres docs. I'm also somewhat active on the Postgres community Slack and will ask people things myself from work, from personal projects. I'll sometimes also contribute answers for people that are, that I, where I can help. Cool. Well, you're in close company. I like reading manuals as well, but I will <laughs> say I have not read the whole Postgres manual. I think on Postgres FM, they were talking about how big it is if you were to print it out. And it, I don't think yeah, could. Yeah. Would, you, you'd retire before you I, I done, use Google and then I read individual yeah. pages. <laughs> That's uh, better yeah, you it's... guys than me. I don't have the patience for that deep dive stuff. <laughs> it's it's weird. And and actually, one thing else, I, one, can I throw in one more thing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I am a... Let me just make sure I get his name right before I quote it. I, I tell everyone about this book. It's my, um, yeah, it's Will Larson, his uh, book, Staff Engineer. Um, he, um, oh, he talks about working on what's energizing to you. And I've been really kind of trying to think about that more the last couple of years, because when I work on something that is inherently fun for me anyway, you know, I just you know, I'm just bringing more passion to it. I'm just more excited about it. Like I actually excited to read the Postgres documentation on my phone at night before going to bed, which is maybe a bad idea, but. Uh, <laughs> Cause then your brain starts but, working on things. Yeah. And that, that is a problem. I am a <laughs> big proponent of sleep hygiene too. So maybe don't do that, but the, uh, you know, <laughs> it, um, That's you know, when you it, print out all those Postgres pages and then you read them. Yeah, I'm like, you know, what is this function or whatever? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. So I might as well work on things that are exciting anyway is kind of how I look at it. And, and then trying to find opportunities to do those things as part of my job expectations too. It creates, there's some mutual benefit there, you know, like it's what I'm going to do anyway. Hopefully it's stuff my, the company I work for is looking for me to do. And then it's a win-win. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, 
the, the pattern I see is that is because there's so much stuff in development now, there are so many things that you need to know that as you get more senior, you start specializing in the different areas and, you know, you, you, this person becomes the, the JS specialist and this person becomes the database specialist and this person, you know, and it's, it's kind of funny to see the, the different likes of different developers. Cause you start out as, Oh, I want to be a web developer. And then you end up in this very, very narrow thing because that's what you've gotten really good at. And that's what you really enjoy. And it's, you know, it's like everybody kind of ends up in a different little, little place. Um, it's just yeah, a... I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I try not to be too cynical about it, but I mean, the reality is like I I just decided at a certain point I just can't keep up anymore with front end development. And I had done I was more of a full stack developer in the past, but it's it's not something that is as exciting or energizing to me. So I do really try to seek out job opportunities where I can be part of a team and I have that opportunity to specialize more. And I can say, you know, I, and also I think being more senior, you become more comfortable saying like, you know, it's totally fine. I don't know everything. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, maybe I'll know a little bit about, maybe I'll have some mental model about how it works basically. And I could maybe help in a crisis, but um, I'm part of a team where we have some front end specialists, some back end specialists, some infra folks. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk to the audience a bit about how you scale things like where where do you when do you say oh gosh we need to concentrate on some scaling here um and when do you how do you start picking that apart to say okay i'm gonna get the best bang from the buck bang for the buck for doing this thing yeah it's a good question actually the um i believe the question more or less in that form came up too with the, um, the RailsConf talk. And um, I think I wrote this up on my blog. I can follow up with you afterwards too, but there was, there was also this RailsConf home edition. I remember a conversation there where someone uh, asked a similar question, you know, how do you get started or which things to focus on first or that kind of thing. And um uh, I, there's a lot of different ways to use Postgres. So my comments will be more like based on Ruby on rails, web applications that I've used that are, you know, where there's a lot of concurrent activity and, um, there's operational things like vacuum, but maybe just leaving those on the side for a moment. I think, um, starting with the. Well, let me just throw out some ideas, I guess. I hadn't really, I don't have like a one, two, three playbook myself. Yeah. And, but um, I don't know, maybe Creston, if you do from seeing it, like I've actually been curious for people that consult with in Postgres and see a lot of different applications. Like if you just start to see the same stuff over and over and you're, you develop a, a playbook. Um, well, but, uh, my playbook is a bit simplistic, but it's like, I look at PG stat statement. So first mm -hmm. of all, if you have Postgres, make sure that you have the extension PG stat statements enabled. And what that does is records every query or statement that you're running in the system. And then you can just look at the top 10 that are taking the most database time. And there are other applications that do this for you and give it in GUIs or whatnot. You could just use PG stat statements. And then I look at the, the top query and say, okay, this one statement is taking 
20 percent of your database is spending at time its time on this query. So okay, what can we do to make this faster? And then you go into depth as to you could look at indexes. You could say, all right, are there bloat problems? Is it being called a lot because uh, like you've got N plus queries or something. So it helps give insight that leads you somewhere else. So that's like the main thing that I do. Like, I don't know if you have examples that, that you've run into that, that you take it a different way. Yeah, I think um, I also have learned about and recommend PG stat statements and it shows you your, um, I, I really also like what the PG hero tool adds on top of that, where it shows you kind of like a percentage look where it uses a combination of the times that a particular normalized query is called. So yep. the, the count and the, um, and the duration, and then you can get more of a, it, I think it attempts to help show you the, the kind of like percent of impact, like you said, the 20%, it's like, you know, of the last 5,000 recorded normalized queries, um, 20, you know, if there's a big, if there's a, a big percentage that's used up then from an infrastructure perspective and resource consumption perspective, that's a good place to start. That could, from a scaling perspective, that could allow you to not have to spend more money to bump up an instance class. Um, but I, what I'm actually running into more lately is more coming at it from the other side, which is the application performance monitoring side, like the APM tool. So maybe you, maybe your organization uses New Relic or Datadog. And if you have um, particularly slow endpoints, the, uh, there may be more interest in working on individual queries and improving them and kind of maybe going from basic ORM queries to maybe writing SQL directly uh, or making queries more selective where, uh, you know, you, you look at um, what's in the where clause or you look at the join conditions and um, that can be impactful too for particular teams. Like if they have this one, you know, this one endpoint we always call is always really poor and maybe it doesn't use a lot of resource load, but it's really slow and customers complain about it. Making a query fix there and shipping that can be more of a kind of a company win, even if it's not like moving the needle on the, the DB that much. And so I, I guess I, that's one thing that comes to mind. But, um, and again, it talks, it depends too, if we're talking about just Postgres or Rails and Postgres. So that comment was more about, like, I, I would say what Creston was talking about was like, if you're looking at just Postgres and it doesn't matter to some extent what the application is doing, where the queries are originating from, you're just trying to reduce the load on the DB server. Could be a PHP app or a Java app or whatever. Um, and a lot of my clients, yeah, I just don't work with Rails clients in my database consulting. I have people who are using PHP and other, and you know, some version of Node. I'm not quite sure which one. So yeah, so a lot of times I have to take it strictly from a database perspective. But I have right. other Rails clients. I'm also using their APMs. Right, but yeah, I do think that the you know having an APM is is important and um postgres fm folks talked about pg stat statements being like an observability tool which i hadn't 
uh, kind of classified it that way before, but I think that it's, that's what it is too. It's another perspective, you know, it's looking at the aggregated queries and, um, and then allowing you to make, make a dent in the resource usage for the database. Um, so I think that's a good place to start for query optimization. If your team has that level of, um, if that's appropriate for your team. And so I think that would be like, if, if your role is a database reliability engineer, or if you're more of an infrastructure engineer and, you know, you want to, you want to move the needle a little bit on the load on your DB server. That's a great place to start is PG stat statements. You don't have to change anything. There's no, there's no new databases, uh, that are needed. Um, so another, another thing though, would be, um, replication and just, you know, Postgres, I think the, the challenging thing for me about scaling is, is knowing, um, knowing the audience and what the expectations are for that topic, because it's a really big topic from that includes stuff way beyond the scale I've worked on that would be like, you know, distributed Postgres with lots of primaries and, and that sort of thing. And I, I'll, you know, I'll let you guys know, I haven't really worked on that environment before. And, um, the kinds of scale, the kind of scale that I've worked on is, is, um, typically I'd say the big things are replication, distributing the read load and the write workload between multiple databases. And there could be multiple readers, uh, partitioning where the data itself has gotten very large and it makes sense both to have a mechanism to remove data from the database and, and talking about retention and stuff. And we could talk about that. Um, and, and then um, kind of like customer level sharding where you might have the same schema, but you might have for a particular customer, their database is running on its own database instance. So they have isolation and they have the load for their usage is, um, is just for their, like the load on the database server is just based on their usage. And, um, and then I would say the other type of sharding is kind of like, I, I think it's called different things, functional sharding or application level sharding, where you might take a group of functionality and relocate that functionality could be metrics or, um, other kind of separable functionality where data is not joined heavily within the application. And that could also be run on its own database. And I, I talked about that actually an example from uh, my workplace in the talk I gave last year at uh, PGConf NYC, which was my first ever Postgres talk. And uh, there was a bit on that. So we, I can talk more about that if you'd like as well, but I'd say that replication partitioning, and then, some kind of distribution of the tables where it, you know, if you have a pattern where you have really, really high rights on these handful of tables, it might make sense to put those in their own database. Or if you're, especially if you're running a software as a service application and your customer is paying for it anyway, or they're asking for right. it, you know, running their database on its own instance uh, is an option as well. So let's take a, let's take a little break for chat, catch up with the chat here. Uh, Colin. Hey, welcome, man. Good to see you. I, I saw you guys had a lot of fun with the hackathon this weekend, so good on you for doing that. Um, 
Uh, Mark Clifton, distributed systems, setting info up to be unidirectional helps a lot and using known unreliable communication styles like PubSub. Um, I, I agree. Yeah, especially with um, one of the things that we did for, to help with some scaling and, and some performance issues in the database was to um, make the data um, non-updatable. So it's all just... It gets written in immutable. there. Yeah, immutable. I I don't like big words. I'm a simple. I'm a simple dude. Um, but yeah, that or four syllables. That's where my my brain shows. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the the um, you know, you put it in the the database because writes aren't that expensive. Um, and then you just keep adding to the database. So it's, you know, like things where we have to keep an inventory level. We just keep adding to the database and then we'll just read it out and, and sum it. Because uh, that's much faster than trying to update. Um, <laughs> Mark, hey Chris, we're at the 35 minute mark. Making sure time does not catch you off guard. Thanks, man. I appreciate you looking out for me. Uh, that's something I just have a problem with. Um, but yeah, well, the great you know, thing the, about insert-only tables is no locking. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it, it so you know, and it did make a big difference. That's what makes it super fast. Right. And he also said plus one to the customer sharding. Um, find out your shared data patterns should help a lot with things like vacuum index boat. Yeah, we actually do that where I work. We have several customers that are really, really big, and if we put them in our shared environment, they would just obliterate everybody, and nothing would ever mm -hmm. run. So we do have several big customers that have their own uh, database setups um, and we keep them segregated. And even then it's kind of tough to keep them running well because they're, they're just huge. I mean, you know, millions and millions of records every month going in and out of that thing. And it, it's a little rough to keep up with, but yeah, the customer sharding, if, if we weren't doing that with the database, it, the whole system would just come crashing down. Um, and in case people aren't aware, we are not yet on, uh, so where I work, we use Ruby on Rails primarily. We have a number of different services, uh, and our primary service is not yet on Rails 7, but I'm really curious about um, the, I think they call it horizontal sharding. Uh, it's, I, I can uh, send a link about this too, but it's in, it's, I'm not sure if anyone on this um, call is using this yet, but you can, they, uh, the rails guides actually are a really good source of, if you wanted to introduce this for your application, if you did have that particularly spiky customer use case with really high growth tables or really high query volume, um, and you're running Ruby on rails and you're relatively closer on Ruby, you know, 6.1 or seven, um, it might be worth a look into as a way to help distribute that load hmm. to be able to um, use the the built-in multiple databases functionality, um, which you can use for uh, other things as well, but to be able to use the, uh, the horizontal sharding functionality. That's interesting because we, we are getting ready to, to start the upgrade to Real 7 progress. Um, that's that's going to be a a path, but um, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't really read up on that. So that's something we'll, I'll definitely want to take a look at. Um, 
I don't. Yeah, so they, so what you're talking about, that's the the ability where you can say this particular model was stored on this particular database. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, you can say, um, you can do, yeah. Yeah, so I think I actually just pulled up the documentation here and. Um, so it's, it's a way of functionally scaling. Yeah. So you're saying this functional unit goes in its own database and this functional using unit goes in its own database. Sorry, Colin, I was wondering what the hell you were talking about with snarfing. I'm glad that was just a typo because I'm like, that's not a term I've heard, dude. <laughs> You done snarfed it up, okay? <laughs> um, but uh, so Colin... yeah, I, I have some I have some clients who are actually doing that with with Ruby on Rails. Oh, cool. So yeah. So um, yeah, Colin says don't remember exactly, but isn't there a vertical and horizontal partitioning? If that's true, just curious as to when you would maybe reach for that. That's actually kind of a good question. Yeah, so partitioning isn't something I had done at all until my current job, but um, we uh, we do use Postgres's native partitioning functionality, and we use the um, both. Actually, we only use currently the um, range partitioning, and there's also another type called list partitioning that we are looking at using, but we don't currently use. Uh, I can talk about like where I think we could use it, but for range partitioning, we have this this um whoops somehow i just shut my video <laughs> off sorry about that sorry um we have the the great thing about range partitioning is we have this uh use case in the application where we have this really high write volume table um where we get around a million rows per day written into this table and the application uh exposes this data for customers to be able to query it but the application only lets you select up to a week back. So uh, this was set up before I joined, but the database administrator set up a daily partition where new rows are written into um, a, a day view. And what that lets us do is for days beyond, days that are older than seven days, we don't really need those to be exposed to the application. So we have options. We can do, um, uh, and Postgres lets you, um, detach and you can detach concurrently as well as to not interrupt other transactions uh, but you can detach the partition and then it just becomes kind of like a regular table so a table a partition from two weeks ago could just be hanging out as a table or you could do things like remove it from the database entirely um, you could use pg dump and dump it and put it into a file and encrypt it and throw it on s3 and forget about it um, you could relocate it to a, a different, um, you could relocate those rows to an archive table. So there's, there's different options there. And the nice thing is it keeps the query performance. There's a number of benefits. It's mainly about data retention though, primarily, and about knowing what the application needs for the data. But then it's also about performance and scaling because, um, we don't, you know, it's um, from a performance perspective, uh, as long as we make sure the queries always um, include information about which partition to um, to use. So we know what the day boundary is and make sure that that's on the where clause of the, the queries, then um, 
we can get better performance than an alternative where there wasn't partitioning, where we might search across many more rows by being able to drill into those specific partitions. So we'll get better query performance. And then um, if there are, um, uh, if there are updates, although in this case, it's an append only table, uh, we don't update this table, the one I'm thinking of, but if there are updates or deletes on rows and you're using partitioning, the other benefit operationally is that vacuum can run concurrently across partitions. So you can um, get better vacuum performance as compared with if all of those partitions were in a single table, uh, you can have multiple vacuum workers on that table and that sort of thing, but you're not going to get the parallelism benefit from having that data distributed across partitions. So we we're trying what we're kind of trying to kind of do on the more again, I'm not a database administrator, but I'm kind of part of I'm like kind of a hybrid app developer database person on the team. And one thing we're trying to do is just encourage more use of Postgres's native partitioning. Um, and encourage more thinking about data retention. Do we actually need all of this data forever? What are the queries actually doing with this data? And in a, in a way you can, it's in a way it's, it's related to scalability because if you kind of have an understanding of uh, the growth pattern of the data, you know, it, it helps with having more predictable performance over time and, and not necessarily needing to scale up or scale out later. So I, I missed a question from Mark here. Uh, perhaps turning synchronous commit off could be acceptable for a worker style DB to the, that doesn't need guarantees. Thoughts on that? I think we, I don't think we, I'm aware of synchronous commit, but I thought it was off by default. Um, my understanding of synchronous commit was if you use replication, physical replication and um, it's commits, the transaction is committed. For example, if you're inserting a row on the primary, it wouldn't be dependent on the, um, Creston, jump in and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, if, if there's an insert on the primary that is replicated to a replica, and I believe, I thought synchronous commit was off by default and it would only be used if you wanted to ensure that the, the transaction wouldn't be committed until it was confirmed to be replicated. But by default async, the replication is async and doesn't work that way. Yeah, between replicas by default, it's async. You have to explicitly tell it to be synchronous. But I think synchronous commit may be referring to actual disk writing. I'm trying to remember. I'm just going to sit here and stir my water while you big boys talk about the <laughs> cool yeah, things. So yeah, so synchronous commit is that's the setting has to do with the write ahead log. And generally, I don't ever turn that off. But like he said, if you're not too worried about um, any sort of guarantees that the rights were made to, but anyone that I work with is pretty much cares about their data. So normally I haven't set synchronous commit off. 
Right. So one of the things that, that I wanted to kind of ask you that I had been thinking about is when we start running into uh, performance issues and we're starting to investigate those, usually the first place I go is to the database. Do we have query problems? Are we missing indexes? Or do we have in inefficient queries? And it most of the time, it's something in the database layer that gets the best bang for the buck. Has that been in your experience? Um, I got a little distracted by reading about the common use cases for turning synchronous, <laughs> which uh, I was starting to think like, oh yeah, I could see that, you know, the migrations and so let's, we could maybe come back to that. But um, uh, Chris, yeah, you were saying, yeah, I mean, at a, at a, um, let me just restate what I think you said, because I was getting distracted, but you said often right. when you investigate at the APM level performance problems, like it's often the database it's due to slow queries. Uh, as being a big proportion or the, a big percentage of the total. So like, let's say it's, um, you want uh, API to respond in 50 milliseconds, but it's taking 500 milliseconds. And you realize that 400 milliseconds of that was the database query, something like that. Is that what you're saying? Right. And I've just kind of gotten into the habit of, hey, we got a performance problem. Let's look at the database first. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think we, the, um, what I'm realizing is I think talking about partitioning and replication is um, probably off-putting for people that are on more like, wait a minute, what about the basics here? So let me, yeah, like the, uh, the first thing, well, so again, kind of, and also I think there's that micro, I really like that micro analysis versus macro analysis distinction that, uh, and, and cause we, we talk about that on our team as well. So on a micro level, which could be maybe an API endpoint, but let's just say now we've zoomed into a particular query, then yeah, the there's there's a, a learning curve involved, but being able to take a query example, if you don't have the exact parameters and coming up with parameters, that's a whole nother topic. But let's say you have an example query in your APM. So it has values in it. You know, it's like um Let's say it's a selects a few fields, it joins a few tables, it does some filtering, it does some ordering, and it does some limits. So taking that SQL query and learning to use explain analyze and the very the very basics to me is learning to identify whether a index was used for a query or not, where you're filtering rows, and um, so identifying. Uh, you know, if a, if a full table scan or a sequential scan was happening for a portion where either you didn't know if an index was in place and you thought it, or you did know it was in place and you're surprised it's not being used, then I think going in and saying, okay, we're always filtering on the account ID field. Let's make sure that this table has an index on the account ID field. And um, typically what, what, uh, with if you have more database privileges, you can actually even just experiment a bit with that. You know, you can um, probably not a good idea in, a, in production database, but <laughs> if you have, uh, you, you know, you can. But uh, you can um, you can you can do things like um, well, you can. I mean, you can just add and drop indexes, for example. You can add an index concurrently and take a query before and after and make sure it uses the index and it's much faster. Best to do that in a pre-production environment. I love, love, love clients that have 
a separate machine that has a copy of their production database. Yeah. So that you can have the exact data at the right volumes, and then you can do that type of analysis to right. figure to figure out query problems or what's the best index or et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I really have learned a lot from and appreciate uh, Lucas Fiddles writing on this too. So I'm gonna call him out too. And uh, he, you know, he he was he gave a webinar or something recently I was watching where. You know, it's like indexes are a trade-off between disk I/O and retrieval speed. Their their main purpose is to speed your queries up, but they also involve the maintenance of indexes when they're not used or um, when they're not optimal or there's overlap or duplicates. That that can actually generate a lot of excess disk I/O. So it's something to be mindful of. And um, what I often see is. Uh, too many indexes, indexes that are not used and duplicates and that kind of thing. A lot of times people will just kind of YOLO and index out like, hey, I think it's this, like I'm just gonna ship three indexes here and this, or they'll, they'll create brand new tables with indexes, which like, you know, maybe they'll, they're, it isn't really clear that they'll ever be used or needed. So um, the I'd say the common problems are, you know, missing indexes, and then uh, the other thing that can happen over time is indexes and table data becomes uh, bloated and it's not laid out efficiently on disk. And for indexes, the way to address that is to rebuild the index. And Postgres, I think it was 12 and newer, you can, you can do that online. So you can do that. You can even automate it. And in fact, where I work, we do that we actually just automatically rebuild indexes periodically. Um, and when we're, if we're faced with a particularly slow query, we often will first eliminate, and I've kind of learned this from our, we do have a dedicated database administrator as well, but there's, you know, kind of eliminate the low hanging fruit that is the database level stuff where it's like, you know, is the index, what's the index bloat? Like first, is there an index? Is the index bloat okay? Um, When's, when's the last time that table statistics were collected? Like when vacuum and, or when analyze was run on the table? When's the last time the table was vacuumed? So we kind of clear all that up, make sure that's not actually the problem. And then, and then you know that you have, you know, if you know that there are indexes that match the where clause of queries and you know that the table doesn't have high bloat and the statistics are updated and the indexes don't have high bloat, then, um, and ideally you have a, a pre-production environment like Creston said, which has similar database size and similar data, then that's kind of like, then, then you're in a, a, a good spot where you haven't fixed the problem yet, but you have all the ingredients that you need to fix the problem. That's been my experience. And that sometimes, you know, then at that point, then you want to look into the kind of query level optimization, but let me take a breath. Cause I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and, and one of the things that Colin asks, uh, typically try to add indexes for columns ending in ID and for queries that run all the time, any other general guidelines on indexes, it's kind of hard to do general guidelines on those because it, you know, do I want to add a bunch of individual indexes? Do I want to add compound indexes? It kind of depends on how you're using that data and how it's, you know, how it's laid out uh, in in your application and how you're querying it together. 
So, well, whenever I create a new table, of course, the primary key is going to get an index. Sure. And then the foreign keys, which is exactly what Colin said. The IDs. Underscore ID and rails. Right. And then just run with that. And then when you seek a slow queries, then you say, all right, we're going to need to do some changes here. Or if you intuitively know, this is the main query and it's going to, it's going to need something to make it more efficient. But then you let it run and then see how the as the table builds and grows and columns are added, then you can, you know, make changes. Right. You and know, one of the things that's, that that's, that's what I do. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned, and I think you were kind of alluding to this, Andrew, is you don't want to just like pre-set pre all your indexes and say, well, I think maybe someday I'm going to use this in this way. So here, let's throw an index on it early on. You just want to add indexes when you find a problem. Um, so I think, yeah, you just want to, I mean, like, like yeah, you said, indexes are, yeah, indexes are costly in size too. And yeah. if you have a hundred gigabyte table and you have 10 indexes on it, you know, you can easily have, um, I've seen indexes that are bigger than the table, you know, like, I don't know how common that is or Creston, if you've seen that too, but it's kind I, of a I've, mind bender. It's like, wait, what, you know, right. <laughs> I've, I've, well, it's, you know, it's a slightly different structure than the heap. So I've seen it when the table has very few columns and they wanted almost every row to be unique. So they have essentially unique index essentially over across the columns. Well, now your index is bigger than your table. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh my gosh. That's painful. And, um, and, and also too, there is, um, uh, I've, I've learned that and I, I don't have a good example, although I actually really want to develop one, but um, generally the guidance that I've learned is to prefer, um, going back to the question about single column indexes versus Postgres, in the docs, they call them multi-column indexes. I think in MySQL, they are commonly called compound. I know I've seen the word compound a lot too, but- Yeah, MSSQL uses compound too. Yeah, multi-column. Um, there's also partial indexes we could talk about. And then there's, these are all the B-tree indexes too. There's also other index types to talk about. Yep. But um, for, yeah, I, I think for for bang for buck, uh, like my mindset is usually to prefer single column indexes um, and not multi-column indexes because um, there can, like indexes for, even if multiple columns are used, Postgres, my understanding is can combine, um, can utilize indexes on single columns together as part of one query execution plan. Right. And um, to a point. Yeah. But I do think the, I also agree with the advice that it's really hard to provide general advice on these. And the best thing is to always test it. And even you can actually even test it locally too. Like I, I have a MacBook. I have Postgres running locally. I can fire up PSQL and um, I have some details about this and you can always hit me up on my blog if you want, but developing a, at least some methodology, if you work in this area, to be able to insert a million rows into your local database and take a similar query and run it and then experiment with just creating indexes. Uh, like let's say I'm, I wanna test if the query execution time. It doesn't, if you want to do that kind of individual query analysis, there's nothing stopping you and you're not interrupting any production traffic and you don't need any special access. 
to do that locally on your computer on, on a local Postgres. And um, what you can do is you can, you can manually run the create index statements. You could do it via Rails migration if you wanted to, but if you, if you spend some time to learn the SQL and uh, you could create a, a, a single column index and then a, a multi-column index, let's say with two columns that are part of a query and you could just test locally and you could, you could at least get a relative difference to the benefit between those two approaches. And that's something I've done too at, at work. Like there's been times where it's too much of a ordeal to test on, I'd get enough information from kind of a quick local test. And so I'll use the, uh, the generate series function that Postgres provides as a built-in function and generate like a million dummy rows to start to get to a reasonable size of a table and then run a query. Like I, I want the query to actually take a little while to take like 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds or something. So you might have to generate 10 million or hundred million rows uh, locally or something to get there, but then you can, and then also your create index statement is going to take a while to run, but not too bad. Um, and you can, you can just test it and you can say, okay, with this version, uh, I can get it, to, you know, and you want to run it a few times, but I, I feel like that's kind of a naive, basic local benchmarking approach where if you get, you run it a few times, you, you kind of could get hopefully some, some difference between those two that then you could uh, take to a production environment and likely hopefully reproduce those same results. I think too, it's, it's kind of good to deep dive into how indexing works on a database because knowing thing like like there's big differences in how you lay out your data and how you can fix data problems not just by adding an index but knowing how and when to add the indexes like integer fields can be indexed much more quickly than text fields you know so if you've got something that can be stored as as an integer do that um if you've got low parity on on a field you know if you've only got two possible values in a field it may be counterproductive to put an index on that field may may actually make things worse in a lot of cases so understanding how they work is is kind of important too to figuring these things out i think yeah definitely i think it's worth um anyone that works regularly with a database doing application development the um the unique values in a column, like you said, can be really informative and you can get that out of Postgres itself with the statistics it collects. You can look at the, uh, is it the PG? It's, there's a system catalogs view that shows you the most common values uh, when analyze runs. And you can always just run analyze table name to update those statistics. And um, if you have an index uh, that is, not very selective. Um, it's it was surprising for me when I learned this, and it's it's I think it's surprising for everyone at first. But you can have an index on a field where Postgres at query execution time will say, you know, it's it's actually slower to access the index, find the rows that I need, and then go and get those rows compared with just reading all of the rows, and it will just not use the index, and it can be confusing as to why. And I think that's a good thing to learn and, and then keep in mind when you're making that decision of, is this index beneficial or not to think about, well, what are the values in this column that I'm filtering on or I'm that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's typically like Booleans or a lot of times status fields. Maybe there's only a handful of status fields. 
But a way, a cool way to get around that if you need to, is you can actually do a partial index, which partial index means it's only going to index certain rows of the table. So you could create, in case of a Boolean, you could create two partial indexes, one where it's true, one where it's false, or statuses. If you only care about, say, three of the statuses, you could put partition indexes, partial, sorry, partial indexes on each of those three statuses. And now it can, the only thing in that index is that one status. So it can very quickly go in and use other columns to pull data. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't done the multiple partial indexes before, but that makes sense. Um, we have done, I have done the, um, I have like replaced an index with a partial index where the, um, the, the queries all had an expression that could then just be baked into the definition of the partial index. And then the big, the big win there was the size reduction of the index. It, oh yeah. It's going to have some pretty dramatic differences. Again, if you have a, if you have a hundred gigabyte plus table or you know, there's, I know there's even bigger tables uh, and you have a hundred gigabyte index, you know, and, and you can, you can um, replace a, that index with a partial index. You can potentially cut it by a, a 10th of this. You can make it the 10th of the size. It depends on what the, how many rows you can exclude with your expression. So when we, when we talk about scaling in general, for, well, from a web development perspective, uh, or an app development perspective, most of the time, what we end up talking about is database scaling. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think um, it's the, I mean, that's been my experience at a lot of companies that choose, you know, their, they, they might be running into performance problems because there's a lot more usage of the application and the, maybe the application like in Ruby, you know, you might have a lot of additional application servers running. Like if it's Puma, you have, you kind of scale at the process level, you have a lot of different processes, but there's going to be this point where everyone needs to, you know, if you have a single database, you have, if you go from 50 to a hundred web application servers, but you have the single database, there's going to be more resource load on the database. There's going to be um, more concurrent activity. The data is going to be growing, which um, can cause challenges in and of itself, like operationally. So yeah, I think, um, you know, I think what I, I, I still kind of feel like to some extent, I've, I've been exploring this for about two years now where uh, the exploring, I guess, where I want to go with, you know, I, I think there are, I know there are these positions at companies, these database reliability engineers, where you kind of focus on some of these problems, you know, if you're at an organization where um, you have enough specialization and, and it's important enough to fix some of these problems, you know, you might be introducing um, replication for the first time, or you might be introducing uh, both physical and logical replication. You might be working on partitioning. You might be working on index management. Um, you could be introducing additional supplemental databases. Like there, there's, there's so many things to do. Um, there's also, you know, we haven't really talked about, and I don't really know a lot about this, but there's 
there's, uh, you know, Citus recently, actually Creston mentioned this recently, I think in your last Scaling Postgres podcast is now open source as a um, multiple, uh, as, as a, a cluster where you have multiple writer databases. And I shouldn't talk about it much because I don't know much about it. I do have experience with um, a cluster of multiple writable nodes with Elasticsearch. Um, but uh, I think that's also part of the story too about scaling is it's at the end of the day, it's, it's resource consumption on one or more servers. And you can do a lot of things like you can make the, you can reduce the resource load by making the queries more efficient. You can relocate the query load to more servers. Uh, you can actually replace, you can rewrite queries. You can, you can relocate functionality to an entirely different database. I know that I think a lot of organizations, they don't solely use Postgres, you know, I mean, some places do, of course, but. We've got a mix. We, we've got yeah. some services on Postgres and the one I work with is on my, my SQL and, you know, and then of course we've got Redis and stuff going on, but. Um, so, yeah. And so to the junior devs that are, that are listening or watching here, very important, spend some time learning database stuff. As you move in your career, you're going to you're going to want to know how databases work. You don't have to be the database expert and know everything about your database, but having some fundamental ideas about how SQL works, you know, how indexes work, how how your database pulls and reads and writes and stores data, it's important to know that stuff. Um so, you know, make sure you spend a little bit of time on that even if that's even if you're a front-end developer. Having a little bit of experience with that stuff is is a good idea. Um, oh my gosh, we listen, Mark. I didn't get my sixty minute bell here, so you know what? I'm not the only one that gets wrapped up in these conversations. See, not just me. Um, but man, I <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I did really enjoy this. This is. This is fun stuff, and apparently chat enjoyed this too. So um, they were really active. So we we appreciate that chat. Uh, we we love when you guys are active. Uh, it makes our conversations and more fun, and makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to think as much. Um, so that's great. Uh, as much as I'd love to spend another hour and a half talking about this, we kind of can't. Um, so Andrew, thank you very very much for taking the time to be with us tonight. Um, I. I do hope that you'll consider coming back and spending some more time with us talking about database stuff, because this is obviously a subject that we could spend years talking about. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of fun with this conversation and we really appreciate you being here. Um, yeah, thanks. Chad. Thank you. Yeah. I would love to. Yeah. And um, I can hold it for a minute, but I wanted to recommend some more resources too, if that's appropriate in our, or when you have a break. Yeah, go for it. Or I could do it right now. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say, you know, for, for anyone that's watching this now or later, um, if you want to get some kind of immediate feedback on things, there's a really good, the Postgres community Slack is really good. And there's a lot of different channels. There's even a channel for newbies, or I don't know, it's sort of like newcomers to Postgres. And there's also some really advanced topics in there too. So there's a huge range and there's a lot of folks in there that are visible within the Postgres community, meaning that they 
they speak at conferences or they've written books or that sort of thing too. Um, and um, someone asked about query analysis. There is PG Analyze Lucas Fiddle's tool. It does have a free version, uh, which uh, is worth checking out. And um, and then, yeah, feel free to reach out to me as well. I like to talk about these topics and uh, I'm available on uh, Twitter or uh, through my website, you can contact me. Uh, and um, yeah, thanks again for the opportunity, Chris and Creston, to uh, join you guys. Yeah, that was a great conversation. Yeah, fun. Um, so, and chat, thank you very much for being here tonight. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did enjoy this and you're listening or watching on YouTube, please make sure and mash that subscribe button and give us a like because it helps other people find us. Um, comments are always welcome. We will respond. Um, I know a lot of the comments come through the live chat, but hey, if you got something after the fact that you think of, just throw it in the comments down there. If you're watching this on Twitch, please make sure and smack that follow button. All those things are free. All those things help us out and they make me feel really good about myself. Um, so uh, do those things. Also tell your friends, bring your friends along. The more people we have here in chat, the more fun these discussions get. Uh, so make sure you do that. We are here every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. We attempt to have a guest every week. So if uh, you like to see somebody particular, um, Hit me up on Twitter, at DuckyDevShow. You can find us there. Um, I do a little bit of little bit of that there Twittering. Um, but, you know, you guys have seen me there. Anyway, um, we will be back next week with... Oh, gosh, I didn't even look. Who, who have we got next week? We have got uh, Ernesto. Ernesto's coming back to talk, talk about code quality and last time he was here he talked about the tools you use now we're going to talk about okay now we've got the tools what do we do with it um so that'll be a fun discussion um so thanks for being here we will see you next week and until then happy programming happy programming bye